Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Ardana Osban, here with my friend, Chabruta and Gordon. Our DAP today, Masafli Givamot, DAP Lamed Vav, page 36. So the Gemara is in the middle of a very uh, lengthy discussion that actually began based on our mission on the previous page uh, about this machlokas between Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish about whether Chalitza or Yibam done to a pregnant Yivama and then she has a miscarriage afterwards if that Chalitza or Yibam was actually valid. So the Halacha goes according to Rachel Lakish who says that she still would require Chalitza um, from the brothers. And Rava comes with the following. That the halacha is according to Rish Lakish uh, in these three matters. And one of them we just spoke about. So I really felt this was an important piece to sort of read because we know that Rabbi Yochanan always, you know, they're bar palukta, right? They always uh, disagree with each other. The halacha basically always follows Rabbi Yochanan. But now in our Gemara, we're going to get the three times uh, that we follow uh, Rish Lakish. And we see this very often. This is not an uncommon sort of uh, Gemara tangent, right? That will take a very well-known uh, pair. And the Gemara will make a comment of, usually we follow this one, but here are the two or three cases where we actually follow the other one. Usually it's in group. Sometimes it's six, things like that. So, uh, so now let's just go through what the other two are. So we've just spent a very long time before, I mean, I didn't, but you presumably, <laughs> co-learners, read the very lengthy discussion trying to prove Rish Lakish. And now they get to the second matter, Ida, right? And this is another one. Ditznan, we learned in a Mishnah. Somebody who distributes or, you know, uh, divides his properties to his sons, uh, Alpiv, like with very specific, uh, with very specific instructions. So what we're talking about here, it's a law of inheritance, Okay. And um, rather than sort of having, you know, things get inherited the way they should, which is basically the eldest son uh, sort of gets a, a double portion and everybody else, the other sons get their portion. This is talking about a person who sort of wants to distribute his estate right before he's about to, uh, before he's about to die. Um, and Gamara uh, that you can find uh, also in Baba Batra. So, and what does it say? He increases the portion to one son and decreases the portion to the other. Where he makes the portion of the firstborn equal to the other brothers, right? So this is not how we typically do our inheritance. It's the oldest brother gets the double portion. The other brothers get an equal portion. And so we say that actually his, as he said, he basically gives us as gifts as opposed to inheritance, uh, you know, after he dies. So in other words, what he's going to do is, is he's actually going to transfer this um, uh, be uh, beforehand, right? That's what he's going to try to do. Um, and, uh, but basically give it out as a gift ahead of time. Um, but if he said that these were inheritance, meaning he specifically says, this is your Yerusha and not Loar Marklum. Then it says, if he didn't do anything. So the point here is, is that he has to say it in a way that he's making it clear that he's doing this as an inheritance and he's not doing this as a, sorry, that he's doing this as a gift and not as an inheritance. So if he's doing it as a gift, he can give a gift however he wants. If he's doing it in the name of Yerusha, then he's got, got to follow the laws of Yerusha. Katab bimba tchila bimba so bimba emsa. 
if he wrote at any point in this document, whether at the beginning, the end, or in the middle, Mishumatana, that it's a gift of Arab Kayamim, then this actually, then this is going, uh, then this actually stands. So uh, to me, at least, this is a very, very interesting halakha, because in other words, what it's saying is, uh, at least his first opinion, okay, that um, you can't do something that would be contrary to the laws of the Torah. You can't make up your own inheritance rules. However, here we come. But Amar, he says about this, in all these cases, okay, the person, the, the son or the, you know, uh, the next of kin who's going to get this, that it's referred to as an inheritance, he doesn't inquire it. Until the person whose property it is, until the donor says, Poloni Poloni or Shu Sadeh, Plonit Plonit Shenetatim Lahem the Matana Biersham. So and so and so shall inherit. In such and such fields that I have given them as gifts, and they shall inherit. Okay. So in other words, the idea here is is that Reish Lakish actually requires. Okay. Um, uh, that there's a language here that uses gifts to all of the recipients. Otherwise, you can't just use you can't just use the word inheritance, and that's sort of what the Reish Lakish piece of this is. And Rava says that the halacha actually follows Reish Lakish. Now we go to the next one, Yidach. This is the third one, Ditznan. Okay, and here we have a mission again. This is also a mission of Batra. Um, Somebody writes all his properties to his son for him to get after his father's death. Okay, so he says that you you will get like he basically writes a, a document that says you will get all the property from today after death. Um, the father can't sell the properties completely because he basically already wrote this document saying he gave them to his son. And the son can't sell them because technically. They're still, um, they're still going to, um, uh, they're still going to, they're still in possession of the father. In other words, once this document is written, but before the father dies, it's sort of like not fully the father's, not fully the son's anymore. Machar let's say the father, you know, did sell his properties. They are sold until he dies. So in other words, the buyer gets the rights to those properties. Um, but once the father dies, uh, you know, they sort of, they don't, they're no longer the buyers anymore. Um, and then it says, Machar Habain, if the the son sells it, the buyer can't use these properties until the father has died. The Itmar, and it was said about this last case, If the father's, if the son sold the property during the father's lifetime, and let's say the son died during the father's lifetime. So in other words, this star was written, okay? And then the father, you know, so you're in this like in between. It's not fully the father, it's not fully sons, but the son actually predeceases the father. The buyer will never acquire, doesn't acquire uh, the property upon the father's death, even though the son sold it, right? But actually, that property goes to the other heirs because that son isn't alive. The rich lucky shamar kanal No, the buyer actually does get that does get that property, um, and and he gets it. So the gemara is going to explain this a little bit. Rabbi Yochanan lo kanat lo Rabbi Yochanan says the buyer doesn't get this property. Kenyan payro ki Kenyan hagluf dummy because ownership of the right of produce 
is the same thing as ownership. Uh, I guess you would say like the actual property itself. So in other words, since the father basically retained the right to that property's produce, he's the owner of the property during his lifetime. And the son's sale basically has no legal standing because the son died before he could actually really sell it. The buyer acquires the property upon the father's death because he holds because ownership of the rights of the produce is not the same thing as ownership of the uh, of the uh, of the property uh, itself. So in other words, the son's sale of the substance of the land to the buyer is effective immediately. And therefore, the buyer basically assumes ownership. Um, of of the land itself, and so this also is the other case where Rava says that um, we follow, we actually follow according to uh, race luckies. I wouldn't say that there's a particular theme uh, that um, you know sort of uh, uh, connects all of these. Um, I mean, I guess the, maybe the theme would be they all have to do with a status, right? Like, and how is the status valid? And sort of not being a uh, 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 it's it's all situations where there's a question, I guess, about like um, uh, a set of circumstances arises that maybe could impact somebody's status. So it could be vis-a-vis uh, chalitza. It could be vis-a-vis, you know, um, uh, you know, whether something is considered to be a gift or an inheritance. And then finally, you know, uh, whether or not a, a sale of property was actually considered to be bad. So I guess I did find a common theme there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm struck again, and I suppose we're going to see this throughout Yavama, we've seen it thus far, the um, the dispassionate way of dealing with all these cases, right? Like, you know, you talk about the son predeceases the father, so blah, 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 blah. I'm like, whoa, whoa the son predeceases the father. This is, you know, the human toll here is not represented in the in the math of it. And I know I make this comment now and again anyway, but that's what struck me here, you know, again. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I mean, and it's a nice little tangent here on the page. Um, Yeah, that's true. Um, I think also maybe it struck me because of what I want to talk about on the next page where I think the human toll might, isn't discussed, isn't mentioned, and yet is maybe more evident because we start talking about babies um, and unborn babies or unsurviving babies. Um, we have here, I'm on Amidbet towards the end of the daf. Um, there's a discussion here of what happens with, um, uh, again, these cases of where the Yavam is not supposed to have married the Yav- y- Yavama because she's pregnant and, or, or, or not clear yet if she's pregnant, right? But in this case, um, it's a citation from the Mishnah, Meaning the offspring, the child, is not going to be the term that I see in English is viable, right? Meaning that the the baby either will not be carried to term or will not survive 30 days. So what happens is we've got a case where they, the Yavam Yavama got together when they were not supposed to, right? And then the question is what happens if that child is born? Well, if the child is born, then it's We've talked about this, right? Then it's irrelevant because that child is from the previous husband who has died. And then there is no issue of Yibum, right? But the question here is, you know, they they preempted the time 
the child is born, the child is not valid, viable, whatever, um, in which case we would say, maybe now is the time for evil, right? Let it kick in. And Rabbi Lezer says, no, no, they have to divorce. And the question is, meaning, yes, the Yibum took effect, and nonetheless, they need to divorce. And it seems to be, you know, that there's some kind of penalty here because he, there wasn't supposed to be Yibum at this time because she was pregnant. Um, okay. So the Gemara has what I think is a, a very fine um, attempt to determine how the, the Gemara makes a claim that Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Lezer agree on this point, and then it tracks through to show exactly how it is that Rebbe Mayer agrees with Rebbe Lezer. So we'll see that before we get to a little bit more about the viability or inviability of a newborn. Amar Rava. Rebbe Mayer and Rebbe Lezer achad. There's the claim, right? Rava's claim is that they're making the same point. Rebbe Lezer had the Amran. Rebbe Lezer's point we've just said, right? He has to divorce her in this case. Rebbe Mayer, Titania, how do we know Rebbe Mayer's position? We have a Breita where it says as follows, Lo yisa adam mu'uberet chavero u'meneket chavero a man, this is not about Yibum, it's just about marriage in general, or second marriage in general, um, presumably, right? A man may not marry a woman who is pregnant with another man's child, or a nursing woman, meaning where she's nursing other, another man's child. And if they did get married, Yotzi, then if, he, if they did get married, then they need to go out, right? Meaning, go out, he, um, he should send her out, I guess, really. Um, because that's that's like the language that means divorce. And they cannot ever get together again, forever. And that statement is in the is in the name of Rebbe Meir, which sounds very very similar to the position of Rebbe Lezer above. Uh, we can talk about, and the Gemara is going to. What's the difference between get, you know, divorce and yotzi? You should take her out, go out. And the translation doesn't work quite well. Uh, especially because of other idioms in English of taking one out, but that's not what it means. The in that brayta, Chazal say the the majority of people, the bulk of the rabbis say that again. The more lenient position is that of the rabbis here, namely, yes, he should send her out, but when it's time, meaning when it's time that she could get married. Again, this is not a case of Yibum. It's a time that she could get married. The child is born. The child is weaned. Then he could marry her again. Meaning the olamit, the forever factor from Rabbi Meir, does not is not present in the rabbanon's position in the rabbi's position. So Amarle Abai Abai talks to Rava, right? Who's the one who puts Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Meir in the same camp and says, "Mimai, how are you getting the point that they're of the same opinion?" Maybe they're not of the same opinion, namely, We can have a very clear distinction between Rebbe Lezer, who's talking about Yibum, right? Because there we're talking about the potential of Eshet Ach, right? Where there's a, a concern of the Doraita, the, the Torah prohibition against um, against Deshanach, against the if he would marry his brother's wife, right? That doesn't quite work if there's no need for Yibu. But what about the case of just a, a woman who's pregnant with another man's child? That's a rabbinic prohibition. That's not a Doraita in any way. Um, you know, assuming that she's a like a completely unconnected, a woman who's con- completely unconnected to who's about to marry her, um, 
you know, for these for this purpose. So that's one suggestion that would say Rabbi Lose and Rabbi Meir do not agree. Inami, alternatively, we also can understand Ad Khan Rabbi Meir Hatam Elamishum Drabana. We could also say that Rabbi Meir's position, meaning in this Brighta, is specifically where we're talking about a woman who's pregnant with a child of another man, right? Because that's the rabbinic prohibition. Um, and maybe Chazal, when they come to make this position, when they come to state this about the case that seems to be more innocuous than the case of Yibum, really what the rabbis are doing is strengthening their position to make it even stronger than, than a, a Torah case, which sometimes does happen. We see that on occasion that the rabbinic, the rabbinic decrees are more stringent, more extreme than you would see from the Torah side of things. But here, here meaning Yibum, the case of Rebbe Lezer above, we can say that because it's a Torah, you know, we can say it's a Torah law, so people are careful to to make sure that they stay away from violating the Torah prohibition to begin with, and then you don't have to establish a penalty, right, because it's already a Torah prohibition. Rava answers, right, and he says, according to the people, the rabbis who argue with Rabbi Meir in that Breita, um, Yotzia Beget. He says that he says they're talking about a, a divorce. You know, don't think otherwise. Amar Marzutra, The Marzutra says that the language is is specific. The difference between he should send her out as opposed to he should separate from her, uh, meaning that that means divorce. He should send her out. Okay, but now we come to the part that is perhaps more, as I said, tugs on the heartstrings. There, in that case, meaning the case that we're talking about, of really, we're talking about a, a, a Vlad Shal Kayama. It's not viable, it's not a viable progeny, child. Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel Omer, Kol Adam Shloshim Yom, Eno Nefel. So they say, well, again, we're talking about can this couple have Yibum or get married, whatever. And the concern is, you know, from the time that she is is pregnant till the time she gives birth, till the time that the child has survived, according to this passage here, 30 days. Until that time, until after 30 days, um, you're at risk of what's cons- the term is nafel. It it. Technically, they translate it as a stillbirth, even though it doesn't really necessarily mean that. You can have a live birth, but the child is not considered viable. Once the child has survived 30 days, even if it were, God forbid, to have died after 30 days, it is still then it's still considered viable and and tragic, let's say, as opposed to a baby that was never going to make it. Um, and if it's if it is not because if it does not survive the 30 days, then it's not clear whether it was viable or not. I don't really understand this vocabulary because if it doesn't survive in the 30 days and it wasn't viable, meaning to me that seems to be the, the definition, but the Gemara here says Sveika Havi. So I, I need to delve a little deeper here. Um, and then the Gemara goes on. So what happens then if, again, if the baby dies during the first 30 days of the baby's life and then... Um, the mother, who's a widow, right? She may think that she's, she may be confused, think that she's born a child. I mean, she has born a child. Think that because of that, she's exempt from Yibum. What happens if she then gets up and 
is but gets betrothed, meaning to somebody else, right? What happens if she marries, again, not marries, if she's engaged, betrothed, betrothed to somebody else? So then we have a whole discussion here that says, well, it depends who she's engaged to. Who, I'm sorry, I keep saying this, who she's betrothed to. Um, because if she's betrothed to someone who's a Kohen, right, we end up into this whole question of like, well, she should really just do chalitza and not, and and then she can go marry whoever she wants, right? But it becomes more complicated because if the person she's betrothed to is a kohen and she's not supposed to have chalitza and then, and then the kohen. So, um, I think that. So as I said, I think you know my reaction both to the passage your data like your your sidebar, but here the human dimension, which comes very stark to me, I think, is this business of like they have to just figure out the math of what's going to happen for the parent, for the mother of the child who doesn't make it, right? And I feel like that's really very tragic in the discussion of it. And we've talked about this before, the idea that, you know, the Gemara sets things up for families to just kind of continue along in part because infant mortality was not as uncommon as it is today. And, um, and the question of what happens to the mother afterwards in terms of her marital status becomes, I think, becomes that much more important for them as opposed to it being, I don't know, as opposed to let's get sidetracked and be caught up in the tragedy, which I think, again, from our modern perspective, kind of takes center stage, at least sometimes for me, at least reading. Yeah, the, the Gemara is not interested in the emotional impacts of these cases. I mean, they just aren't. They're, they're really discussing just What's the halakha? How do we solve it? Um, and, you know, they go through every permutation of every possible case uh, that could happen. I mean, that's really, I think, a lot of what this parrot is dealing with, right? Like, Yibum's a little bit not done the way it should have been done. And what are the implications or consequences of, of that? And it, it comes up with many, many different, you know, sort of scenarios of how that could potentially play out. Yeah, I don't know that the lack here, here I'm willing to say, I don't know that the lack of emotion around some of this is the patriarchy or because it's written by men. I, I think some of this is like, it's just not what they're interested in. They're interested in the practical piece, you know, and that's just how they're going to talk about it. Oh, agreed. I I did not mean to suggest that I was thinking um that they're not paying attention to the right things. I don't think it's a matter of right or wrong or that they're being dismissive of something that we think is important. I think it's just every so often I'm struck by the fact that the emotion is not there. Every so often we do see it there. And most of the time, I think I also like, let's just follow through the cases, right? This is, some of it is, as we've discussed, pushing the envelope or just, you know, I don't mean envelope, pushing the parameters to determine what the possible cases are here. And then then that is just fine math, right? It's something about the NAFEL cases that get to me. The the cases of a baby that is born and doesn't make it. Yeah, I I, I know I agree with you. I, and I, I have no personal like let our listeners think I have no personal experience, you know, on my my own personal story does not include that. Um, but still, it's still it's heartstrings, it tugs. Yeah, no, it is. It's they're they're sad. I mean the whole concept of Yibam itself is sad. I mean, it's, it's, it's the idea is, you know, somebody passed away at the 
prime of their, you know, or at a time of their life where they did not have children? And how do you sort of rectify that tragedy? So there's something sad in this entire Masachet altogether. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go. Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Dana Osband, here with my friend and Chavruta Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Yavamot, daf Lamed Zion, page 37. So our Gemara gets into an interesting discussion here, one that I've always found fascinating, which is this concept of the nine-month and seven-month babies. So if you recall, our Mishnah discussed what happens in a case where it's a woman gives birth seven months after she's married to the Yavam, but it's not clear, right, uh, that, um, you know, that was this baby conceived with the second husband or was this a baby that's actually a nine-month baby that was conceived with the deceased brother? Um, and if it was actually, so there's actually a suffix here. And so the Mishnah actually says you bring this asham taloi um, and because you're just not sure really, did they do a chait or did they not do a chait? Chait. Rava has a very interesting question about this. Amr le Rava le Rav Nachman. So Rava says to Rav Nachman, Lem halach acha rov nashim, v'rov nashim letisha yaldan. So he says, why don't we just assume the rove, right? The majority, most women are pregnant for nine months and let them, let's just assume that this was a nine month baby. Therefore, the assumption would mean that this was actually a baby who's the offspring of the deceased brother. And they should just bring a chatas, like just treat it as a certain case. Why are we even getting into, maybe there's a chance that this was a seven month baby. Rav Nachman replies, He says, well, actually the woman in our family in my family, they always give birth after seven months. So, you know, therefore, we couldn't do the suffix thing. Amar Le, so Rava replies back, So he says, wait, but the m- women in your house are not the majority of the women in the world. And most women really, it, this is just an issue for uh, very, very few women. So Rav Nachman actually gets into a little bit more detail here about what the suffix is, and it's very interesting. This is what I'm trying to say. Most women are pregnant for nine months. And there's a minority who their pregnancy is only for seven months. Everybody who is pregnant for nine, who gives birth at nine months, they recognize that they are pregnant uh, a third after a third of her days. In other words, by the third month, they know that they're pregnant. But here in this case, this case of this Yavam and Yavama, it's clear that she must have not recognized that she was pregnant in her third month. In other words, what he's saying is, it's not just about the nine month and seven month when you're born, but there's something also about the pregnancy, uh, about the pregnancy itself. And so what they're saying is, is that obviously if this was a typical nine month baby, right? she would have known she was pregnant already um, by the third month. That's how you're counting well that it's a nine-month baby because you say like, oh, this is the third month. I don't know what he's referring to. I assume it refers to skipping a period and that they count three and so therefore they know that they were they were pregnant for three months. Um, so that's where she's the majority is compromised. In other words, that's where we think that's where the uncertainty is because if this woman, in this case it has to be this woman did not have that recognition of pregnancy early on. It's not that a woman 
is pregnant and then she sort of waits to see like, oh, when is the baby born? Is it going to be at seven months or nine months? And that's how I know if I'm a seven month or nine month person. He's saying this goes all the way back. And there's something with the nine month babies that they were able to, they knew when they were pregnant. And by the third month, they knew that they were pregnant. And that's why it's still considered a suffix. And then the Gemara goes on to ask, So it says, if it's true that every woman who gives birth after nine months knows by a third of her pregnancy that she is pregnant, So then it says, okay, so then if she doesn't know that she's pregnant by a third, and then somehow she has this baby, we have to just assume it's a seven-month baby because you're saying part of a nine-month pregnancy is that you understand you are pregnant in your third month during that nine-month pregnancy. Ella am I, right? So rather, right, what do we have to say Rav Nachman was saying? Rov Latisha, right? The majority uh, of women who give birth after nine months, ubarani karlashi So it's the, they know that they're pregnant by the third month. Vahai means alohu karlashi shama, But here in this case, um, the, it was recognized, right? She didn't recognize that she was pregnant from after a third, right? And so therefore we can't say that she's really like the majority of women. So uh, the Gemara is making an interesting amendment because it's a great question on Rav Nachman's statement. Um, what they're basically saying is, is that, yeah, it's the majority of women are pregnant for nine months. That of those women who are nine month women, the majority of them know they're pregnant at the third month and can recognize that this is three months of pregnancy. The question here is, is that you have a woman who didn't have that three month recognition, right? And so therefore we can't assume that she is in the majority of all women. And therefore we have this question of the suffix of the seven month. And that's why the Mishnah says she brings this ashram talui and not bringing uh, the chatat. I, I've never seen a good explanation for how this sort of seven month thing gets crept in. There's actually some, uh, you know, literature, secular literature. We'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to Yavamot, uh page 42, because there's a much lengthier discussion there. Um, but, you know, I think we always think of it as sort of like a non-scientific fact but Rav Nachman, in a way, makes it scientific. Like, it's not just about like, oh, I had a baby. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I was really pregnant for nine months. So it must be this is a seven-month baby. Rav Nachman makes this even earlier. Like, that there's a piece of this that by three months, right, if you know you were pregnant for three months, then you know you're having a nine-month baby. So there's something a little bit more scientific going on here than I think is normally... Um, discuss when we have, you know, when we see the seven month thing, everyone's like, oh, this is like weird Gemara science. I, I guess I'm just trying to defend it a little bit. Not that I think it's true, but more that um, it, it, from Rav Nachman's description, it's a little bit more scientific, even though he's from a seven month household.